on today's message from Harvest Church of God. So they got this in their mind. When our king comes, he's going to outdo the Romans. But when they looked up, here comes the king on a donkey. There's 365 fear knots, and there's 365 days in a year, so there's a fear knot for every day of the year. I want to tell you, the master needs some folks. I'll just say it like that. He needs you, and he needs me, and he needs her, and he needs him. The master has need of anybody that will carry the message of Jesus. Father, now we come to the portion of this service where we open the book of life and we examine its contents. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, but it's also food for our spirit man. I pray, God, that you would touch this unworthy vessel and use these instruments of lips and mind and heart to convey spiritual truth to people that they may live. You said, my words, they are spirit and they are life. Touch us with the life of the spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. And everybody said amen. John chapter 12 and verse 12 is where I'll be reading from this morning. This Sunday, as I said earlier, is a high and holy day because it begins a week that is very special to people who are believers. It is the week that is called Passion Week. It is chocked full of all kind of activity, the cleansing of the temple and all the activities that take place during what we call Passion Week. They are the last week of our Lord's walk upon this earth. On Friday of Passion Week, He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane and carried to the house of the high priest, Caiaphas first, and then was delivered to the Romans because they could not kill anyone during Passover. They just wanted to pass the buck and get the Romans to do it for them, to escape any kind of consequences themselves from the people. On this spe special day of the crowd, we've got the crowd, the Savior, and Palm Sunday. We've got these three entities and how they relate to each other is the subject of our preaching this morning. John, all four of the Gospels, the evangelists, all four of them record this event. I'm going to use uh, John's because he quotes two Old Testament passages that I want us to find the correlation between this Gospel according to John. 12 and 12. On the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, Jesus is coming to town. When they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is he, is the king of Israel that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat there on as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh, sitting on a donkey's colt. The first time that Israel ever acknowledged the king of the Lord Jesus, the kingship of Jesus. First time in all of his life, all of his ministry, all of the miracles, this is the first time that they ever recognized him as their king. No wonder Jesus stopped the procession from Jericho and asked, Who do men say that I am? And the disciples answered, Jeremiah, Esaias. And Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the one that comes in the name of the Lord. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you've come to this world to save sinners. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you because flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. Relationship with the Father helps you identify who Jesus is. 
right relationship and right standing with our Creator helps us to identify and properly recognize Jesus for who He really is. And that's so important because Jesus said, upon that premise and upon that confession of faith, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church that knows who Jesus is. The church that recognizes Jesus as the chief cornerstone, recognizes Jesus as the rightful heir to David's throne. You see, that's what Matthew's gospel is all about, and you find this recorded in Matthew 21. And in, in that venue, you see Jesus as the rightful heir to David's throne. God had made a promise to David. He said, forever a member of your family will sit upon the throne in Israel. What that did, that identified for us that Jesus was part of the Davidic line, that he was part of the lineage and the genealogy of King David. And God kept that promise un unto him. So Jesus is the rightful heir of David's throne. Now, all of the Jews longed for the day when their promised one would come. They'd heard all of the prophetic utterances from the Old Testament. They'd heard prophets tell them that uh, a child shall be with Micah, a man shall be for your peace. Uh, Isaiah said unto us, a child is born, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and of his kingdom and his increase there shall be no end. You can't have a kingdom without a king. So they got this notion that a king is coming. A king is on the way. A king is sent from God according to his promise and we are the happy recipients to get the benefits of this king. When this king comes, he's going to make all things right. When this king comes, he's going to solve all of our problems. When this king comes, he will destroy our enemies. When this king comes, we'll have peace and not strife. When this king comes, he'll throw off the yoke that is oppressing us now by the Romans. When this king comes... He'll make us happy while now we're nothing but sad and oppressed. They had such high hopes. They had it all planned out. They didn't know exactly how he was going to come and defeat the Roman army, but they had in their mind the, the illusion that when Jesus comes, he's going to drive out these Romans out of Palestine drive them all the way back to Rome, and we'll never see them again. We'll never be bothered with them again. They'll never oppress us again because when the king comes, he's going to defeat the Romans and take this oppression off of us. Now, that's the mindset of what's going on in Israel when this passage takes place. Jesus is not in Jerusalem at the Hilton. He's not at the Hyatt Regency. He's not over at Weston. He's not at New World. In fact, he's not even in a motel. Not even in an inn. At his birth, there was no room for him in the inn. On this Palm Sunday, there was no room for him in the inn. You see, to get the, the atmosphere of Jerusalem at this time, they were all in a festive mood. This was a happy time. Palm Sunday was a very happy time for, for Israel because they were celebrating the fact that one day the yoke is going to be thrown off. When this king comes, when this king comes, we're here to celebrate Passover, they said, and when this king comes, all of our problems are going to be solved. God is going to keep his word. And they had it all planned out exactly how it was supposed to be. They... The population of Jerusalem at that time was about 200,000. But during Passion Week, it grew to about 800,000. Every available room was taken. Do you know where Jesus stayed? He stayed at one of the suburbs in what Jews at that time considered a ghetto or a poor, poverty-stricken, run-down suburb of Jerusalem. It's called Bethany. Bethany. Now, that's an interesting title there that it is called Bethany. When you break that word down, bit means a house and a knee means poor. 
So Jesus was literally staying at the poor house. Now you may call where you live the poor house. I sometimes tell people, I, I need time, about time for me to get back over to the poor house. There's actually a place where Don fishes that's called Poor House Branch. And Michael, you're right. Some of his fishing is pretty poor. Poor house. Bethany literally means the house of the oppressed, the house of the afflicted, the house of the weak, the house of the impoverished. So Jesus is staying over at the house where they're considered a run-down area of town. Not much of a dwelling place for a king, huh? Not much of an accommodation for one who is king of the Jews. And the Bible tells us that there was this special connection to this family, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. You all know the story. I've preached it many times that Lazarus got sick. And while he was sick, his sisters sent word to Jesus, come on over, we need you. Come on over to the poorhouse. You know we can't afford to treat this any other way. You know we don't have the money. You, don't, you, you know that we don't have the status. We don't have the rank. We're just very impoverished people, we need you. Did you know that Pentecostalism is the religion of the oppressed? That's right. Pentecostalism is the religion of the oppressed. We don't do that well in the New Yorks and the Skylines and all the fancy well-to-do people and buildings and commerce. We don't do that well. In the, we, we usually do well where people are living from hand to mouth. We do well in third world countries. Did you know that the church as a denomination right now is barely getting 1% growth out of a year? But did you know on the mission field, we're growing at a rate of 17% per annum. Why is God blessing us on the mission field? Because we're the religion of the oppressed. Oh, yeah, if someone from down where the lynches in Ecuador are working, if their congregates could come to a building like this, they would think they were in the Taj Mahal. Did you know that in Bolivia, if you take a $10 bill to the Bolivian exchange, an American $10 bill, you'd need a wheelbar to take your money away. So Jesus identifies with the poor. Jesus finds identity in the oppressed. Jesus, I guess it's because oppressed people are needy people. They have to trust God for sustenance, for protection, for covering, for shelter. They just are more apt to believe God and trust the promises of God. Jesus is perfectly at home in just such a place. And he's dwelling there with Mary and with Martha because he had a past with them. And when Jesus showed up while Lazarus was sick, you know, one of the sisters ran out to meet him and said, Oh, Master, if thou hadst been here, Lazarus would not have died. You know, I love it when we start arranging our processions, don't you? That's what was wrong with Palm Sunday. In their minds, they had the procession already arranged because they had beautiful examples of how a parade is supposed to take place. The Romans had taught them well. I'll go into that in just a minute. But this sister already had it in her mind, the limitations, the impossibilities, and said to Jesus, you missed it. We sent for you. You didn't come. Now you've come, and it's too late. He's dead already. If you'd have been here like we sent for you, he wouldn't have died. And I love the way Jesus gently believes with, deals with people who are of little faith or no faith. Little hope, 
I told you about driving in the country the other day and went through Little Hope Baptist Church. And I asked somebody what the name of that community was. They said, No Hope. I said, You've got to be kidding me. The name of this place is No Hope? And the name of the only church in town is Little Hope? Holy moly. I imagine Martha was a member of the Church of No Hope because she said he's dead and it's your fault for not getting here when we sent for you. And Jesus said one of the most powerful statements to her. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live again. To the place where the impossibility is. Take me to the place where the no hope is entombed. Oh, we don't want to go there. It's been three days. Hey, he's stinking now. Buddy, you don't want to mess with that grave now. You, you didn't get here on time. You missed it. It's too late now. Have you ever told God it's too late? Nod your little head, yes. Because you've told me it's too late. Jesus said, if you can only believe, if you can just believe, you'll see the salvation of the Lord. And the Bible said they took him to the sepulcher. And that famous 637 in John, Jesus wept. He stood at the tomb of Lazarus. And the, those standing around said, my, how much he must have loved him. And Jesus made a command. Don't you love commands? Made a command. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. Woo. And the Bible said, and he came out from the grave. And Jesus said, get those grave clothes off of him. You mean you need to get rid of grave clothes when Jesus resurrects you, Brother Jerry? Yeah, you need to quit wearing your grave clothes around. Especially don't wear your grave clothes to church. Especially don't wear your grave clothes where folks will think you're dead. Get off those dirty, stinking, filthy grave clothes. Some preacher said, Mark, if they hadn't called Lazarus by name, they'd have emptied the whole cemetery. Because when he says, get up, the Bible said, they that hear his voice shall awake. Praise God, there's coming a day when that voice is going to wake up the dead. There's coming a day when that trumpet is going to sound and this world's going to have a convulsion. Praise God. Hey, there's another coming, and I don't think this is the one that was it. Because they understood he was coming to fight a battle. He was coming to die. He was coming to fulfill the purpose of God. He was coming in obedience to a prayer he'd prayed. Father, if it could be, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, thy will be done. He had come to fulfill what he'd said to God and fulfill the purpose to save sinners, Paul said, of whom I'm chief. And the Bible, Jesus said, don't, don't you know that I am come to seek and save the lost? Amen. He was come. Yes, he was coming, but he wasn't come to be put on display as that king they were all looking for because he greatly disappointed them if that's what they were looking for. What does that word mean? It's house of the poor, and Jesus identifies. And the Bible said, for the first time Israel, recognized who their, who their king was, that Jesus was the king. Didn't act like a king. It didn't appear to be a king, but he was the king of glory. Who is this king of glory? Lift up your head, O ye gates, and be lifted up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty in battle. He is the king of glory. Praise God. And the Bible said when the people heard 
that Jesus is coming to town. When they heard that Jesus was coming to town, they said, well, we might ought to make some preparations then. And the Bible said they started tearing down palm branches and putting them in the way. They took their clothes and strewed them in the way, and they started saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosha-na. Hosha means save, to save. Na means now. What they were crying out was, save us now. Oh, well, I thought they were just saying praise the Lord. No, they wasn't praising the Lord. They were crying out. You remember Psalm 107 about the cry out? You remember all those categories that were said there in, in that great verse? They cried out and the Lord delivers. And then there is a requiem. You remember when I preached that psalm, when we went through the psalms, and I told you that was a requiem psalm? In other words, there's a recurring theme of that whole psalm. And it is this, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his works for the children of men. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and his works for the children of men. In Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9, the Bible talks about that prophecy. Could you put that up there for me, please? Zechariah 9 and 9. It talks about this very thing that they hollered out. They didn't invent that themselves. They were actually quoting Scripture. Do you ever quote Scripture? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just, having salvation. He's lowly and riding upon a donkey and upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is coming to them in a very humble type way. Jesus is not coming riding that white horse. Do you know how important this illusion they had of a parade? And they had them all the time. Romans loved to put their might and power and authority on display. They loved a parade. And usually the king, conqueror king, would ride in front and he would ride on a huge white horse. Had to be a white one and it had to be the biggest one in the country. How do they measure horses? Hands? How many hands high a horse is? What would you say a normal one would be, Don? I have no idea. Ah, let's just say for a reference, 15 hands. That's getting on up there pretty good, isn't it? I don't know who measured the horses, but they brought the biggest, strongest, most healthy most well-bred steed that they could find and put the king on it. And he rode out front leading the whole procession on the white horse with all of its war armor gleaming in the sun with swords and spears gleaming and sparkling in the bright Palestinian sun as he rode in front of his legions and they all marched behind him in perfect order. And then came the captives and the slaves and the bondsmen, then the shackles and the chains where they'd conquered their country and brought them back as prisoners. And they would march them down this same Palm Sunday road that would come right down from the Mount of Olives, right down through the Garden of Gethsemane, across the brook Kedron, and right on up to the Temple Mount area. There garrison was at the San Antonio Fortress. And it is so close to where the temple is because the temple's where all the trouble happened. And they built their garrison where they could look over and see what those crazy Jews were doing. And every time there'd be an insurrection or there'd be a zealot 
zealot is what was called one of the revolutionaries. The Bible identified Thomas as a zealot. He was a zealot. In other words, he was part of that Maccabean revolt to overthrow those Romans and get them out of God's promised land. So it was very common for them to see chariots. It was very common for them to see grandeur and opulence. It was very common for them to observe conquer and might and power and authority and holding sway over others. So they got this in their mind. When our king comes, he's going to outdo the Romans. Don't know what kind of a horse he's going to ride on, but it's going to be the biggest, baddest, best horse that there is in the country. But when they looked up, here comes the king on a donkey. You've got to be kidding me. In fact, it wasn't just a donkey. If you read the Matthewan account, you'll find out that there was two of them. There was a mother... And there was her colt. And this scripture I read in our text said that he found a young donkey. Well, Matthew gives us more information. That they went into town, found them tied up to a hitching post, and went over and untied them. And the owners came over and said, what are you doing? Said, the master has need of them. Boy, I'm tempted to preach a little while about the master has need of them. I want to tell you, the master needs some folks. I'll just say it like that. He needs you, and he needs me, and he needs her, and he needs him. The master has need of anybody that will carry the message of Jesus. But the Bible said that Jesus rode on the foal. He didn't ride the mama. He just rode the foal. Now, I've told you that those two illustrate for us a union of two testaments. Old Testament and New Testament is joined together at the joint piece of Jesus. Jesus unites Old Testament and New Testament. But the story of Jesus is found on, it's carried by the younger, the newer, the New Testament. And Jesus sat upon the foal and rode into Jerusalem on the foal. Well, let's see if we can get this in our mind here. We got the big horse. And then we got a regular horse. And then we got a mama donkey. And then we got a foal. I, I don't know, but his feet might have drugged the ground trying to ride that foal. Because it was the littlest one around. Jesus loves to take little things and make mighty statements with little things. The songwriter is right. Little is much if God is in it. Little is much if it is in the plan and the program of God. Isn't it something that God takes little things? Isn't it, isn't it something that that God uses little things. That woman that said, I, I've just got a few drops of oil and I've just got a pinch of meal in the barrel. I can't make but a little small cake for me and one for my, my, my son, but at thy word, at thy word, at thy word, I'll do as you say. And the Bible said when she baked the cake and brought it to Elijah, the Bible said the oil did not give out and the meal did not perish the whole duration of the famine. Woo! Wouldn't you love to have a barrel that never gives out? Wouldn't you like to have a cruise that never goes dry? When God takes little things and moves in little things, he always gets a big result. So Jesus was riding on the least 
Wow. Not like the Romans. Not like they all thought it would be. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, having salvation, lowly, riding on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 107, in that Requiem Psalm, there's four different instances where that reference is made to a cry out and a Lord's hearing them and delivering them. The whole notion for me here is this. A donkey is a servant animal. A donkey is a worker. A donkey is a burden bearer. A donkey is the symbol of humility and meekness. What Jesus was saying is that what that donkey represents, riding upon that metaphor, he said, I want you to understand that he is meek and he is lowly. His coming is lowly. His coming is in meekness. Meek and lowly, your king is coming to you. Wow. What he's actually saying is, it's not the way you think. He's not coming to set up a kingdom at this time. He's not coming to put all of you on thrones and we're going to beat everybody else down and let you rule over them. That's not the way this is going to be. They've missed the thought of Isaiah's link to this. Surely he hath borne our sorrows. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. He was bruised for our iniquity. Surely he bore our sorrows. Surely our penalty. He assumed that for us. And you see, that's what a donkey represents. It carries the burden so that you don't have to. Wow, did you miss that? That was shouting stuff right there. He carries the burden so you won't have to. You don't have to walk. He, you can climb up on his back, and you can use him to get to where you're going. You can use him. He'll work for you. I said, he'll work for you. I said, he'll work for you. So what the Bible is telling us right here is Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to die for the sins of the whole world. He's going to do the work so that you don't have to. He's going to die on the cross so that you don't have to. He's going to have his back plowed by the powers so that you don't have to. He's going to endure the spitting in the face and the plucking out of the beard and the crown of thorns. He's going to endure that so you won't have to. He's going to do the work of redemption. Wow. No wonder the Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 8, that is by grace we are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Titus 3 and 5, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. So there is a save us now. The second thing I want you to see in this is that fear not part. You see it in verse 15 of John 12. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king comes. Fear not. There's a save us now and there's a fear not. Did you know that fear not is the most used command in all of the word of God? I'm going to say it again because you didn't get it that time or you would have shouted. Fear not is the most used command in all of the Word of God. Over 100, 106, seven times. Fear not. And resemblances of it that says the same thing, joining that 106 and 107, there is 365 references to fear not in the Bible. Does it seem strange to you that there's 365 fear nots 
and there's 365 days in a year, so there's a fear not for every day of the year. Hallelujah! Cindy, what that means is God has already put the fear not in the book for today and for tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow and tomorrow's tomorrow's tomorrow. Every day God has a fear not for you. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Fear not. You got a king. He's not a king like you think. He's a king that conquers death. He's a king that forgives sin. He's a king that heals our bodies. He's a king that helps us throw off the bondage and the shackles of sin. He's the one that gives us victory. This king is a king of glory. This king works for us. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Did you know the first three fear nots are found in the book of Genesis? What does Genesis mean? Beginning. So God says, if you're beginning something, here's your fear not. Every time you start something, here's your fear not. Every morning when you wake up, before you get started good in the beginning, here's your fear not. At night when you go to bed and ask the Lord to keep you through the night, here's a fear not. When you go down there to that doctor's office and he said, I got a strange thing on your, on your mammogram. God said, well, before you go down there, let's get you a fear not before you go. Yeah. God's got a fear not for all of his people. He's a king. He's a king with authority. And he's a king that works for us. Fear not. Thy king cometh unto thee. There's a difference, you see. Right now, a lot of people are, are fearful. But I want to tell you, there's a difference between concern and fear. Concern is one thing. Fear is another. The Bible tells us, I shall not fear what man shall do unto me. The Lord is the strength of my life. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I fear or of what shall I be afraid? Now listen to me. Common sense that God gave me helps me to know that you need to cooperate with things that have been put in place for your good. Amen. I'm not one of those rebels. No, I'm not, I'm not of that persuasion. Don't have any rocks to throw with them. I'm just saying I'm not one of them. Concern, yes. Afraid, no. For I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that that I commit to him against that day. Afraid, no. Committed, yes. Afraid? No. Concerned? Yes. Yes. Yes, I'm concerned. And yes, I'm going to cooperate. As, because the Bible said, as much as life within you, strive to be at peace with all men. The Bible tells us, obey them that have the rule over you. The Bible even identifies people who help keep the peace as servants of God, ministers of God. So I'm going to work with whatever effort is made. What kind of a testimony would it be if we said to people in the world that Christians are a bunch of obnoxious, aggravating? We don't need that testimony. So concerned, yeah, but afraid, no. Because I know who I am and I know who he is. And I know what he's done for me. Come on, Olivia, and help me land this plane. Somebody said, I think he's fogged in. Third thing about this is in that last verse. Zechariah 9 and 9. Rejoice greatly. Rejoice greatly. Jerusalem was very accustomed to having parades. But God said, I'm coming, but not like you think. 
It's not going to be the way you've got it planned. And he says for us, everyone, to give thanks. Boy, I'm skipping a lot, turning a lot of pages to get to the last part. Psalm 107 says, Oh, that men would thank the Lord. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for His excellent goodness to the children of men. I remember a time, and there have been so many of them. Once I start remembering, I'll remember a bunch of them. How God helped us almost to the very penny. I was in my study griping to the Lord. Some people call it praying. I was actually griping. Lord, why in the world have you got me in this mess? Lord, why do I have to deal with all this stuff? Lord, what in the world is going on? I was doing that one day when we owed a bill that day. That day. And we didn't have it. Didn't have it. And the secretary interrupted my griping session. He said, there's somebody here who wants to see you. And I started to say, well, I'm not through griping. I need to finish my griping. I want the Lord to get the full impact of this thing. But I said, okay, I'll, I'll come out. Came out of my office, walked out there. And this lady who had come here a couple of times in service, didn't stay. And I actually kind of forgot about her being here. And she handed me an envelope. And I said, thank you so much. I thought it was $20 or something like that, you know. Thank you so much. God bless you. And went back in the griping chamber and opened the envelope up. And it was exactly what we needed. And I've not seen her since. I don't know where she went. Might have been, as David used to call them, angels in their underwear. Well, an angel unaware. Thank you. Have you ever been gropping to God? And he answered your prayer. And you felt so bad for just sitting in there growling and fussing and gropping at God. And all the time, him got the help on the way. And then you will just holler, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. There have been times when I've pulled over on the side of the road to say, thank you, Jesus. Because I was getting so beside myself with my enthusiasm that I, I was probably a threat to somebody's safety. Amen. Sometimes you just need to thank the Lord. Sometimes you just need to stop and look up and say, no griping today, God. It's all praise today. All praise today. No fussing and growling today, God. No complaints, no griping, no grief, no sorrow today. It's all praise, God. You know what? If we would do that praising before we do the griping, sometimes it might cut short the griping. There's coming a time when our king is coming. It's in Revelation 19 and 11. Would you put it up there for me, please? Revelation 19 and 11. But I'm going to preach this again sometime when i got more time to do it. Somebody said, let us know. <laughs> I know. And I saw heaven open. Who's writing this? John on the Isle of Patmos. Out in the Aegean Sea, about 17 miles, a little old barren rock where not one blade of grass would grow. It was a penal colony. You were placed there when the Romans were really mad at you. And this 87-year-old, he's 87 now. Lord of mercy, I told you I was old. He's a lot older than me. 87. He is the only one of the disciples that died of natural causes. Do you know that? Yeah. He's on this rock, and God opens him up what we call the revelation. 
He first sees Jesus in Revelation 1 and 10. Get this one. Revelation 1 and 10. And I, John, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What? Man, what have you got to be in the Spirit about? You're 87 years old. Your bones are creaking and breaking. You got to go take a sledgehammer and bust up rocks to put on those Roman roads and pave them. Man, you've got nothing to look forward to. You're stuck out here in a terrible place. What in the world are you getting in the Spirit on the Lord's day? What that lets me know is if you're of a mind to get in the Spirit, you can get in the Spirit wherever you're at. No matter what the circumstances are, no matter what your age, no matter what your status, you can get in the Spirit. He didn't see a thing until he first got in the Spirit. And when he got in the Spirit, he said, I saw standing behind me one whose hair was white like wool. And he said about his paps was a golden girdle. And he had on a priestly robe down to his feet. And his feet were as fine brass burnt in the furnace. And when I saw him, I fell as a dead man. And he came over and laid his hand on my head. And he said, I am Alpha. And I am Omega. I am the first and I am the last. I'm the beginning and the end. I am he that was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I've got the key to death and hell and the grave. And in the 19th chapter, John said, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the biggest, baddest horse in heaven, whitest, stoutest, tallest, heaviest, strongest, and there was one sitting on that horse. He that sat upon him had a name. He was called Faithful. Has he been faithful to you? He was called Faithful and True. Has he been true to you? Can you trust what he says? And true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. Next verse. His eyes were like a flame of fire. On his head were many crowns, and he had a name that was written that no man knew but he himself. Next verse. He was clothed with a vesture, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The Word of God. And the armies. Who is this now? Glenda, this is you. Natalie, this is you. Karen, this is you. Well, I'm not much at riding horses, Pastor. Well, whatever needs to be fixed, it'll be fixed because you're going to ride that one. And the armies which were in heaven followed Jesus upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Brother, that's when the battle's going to take place. The battle didn't take place at Palm Sunday. Jesus was going to die. The battle is going to take place right here. Listen to it. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he would smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Next one, and we're through. He hath on his vesture. He hath on his vesture. And on his thigh a name that was written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Oh, there's coming a time when he's going to make a triumphal entry. There's a time when he's going to come riding on a white horse. There's a time when he's going to come and fight the battle and defeat evil and oh, wickedness and iniquity. He'll defeat it all by the word of his mouth. Hallelujah. Hey, it's not time yet for the triumphal entry. It'll happen Right there on that screen, his name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Oh, I wish it could happen today, don't you? I wish it could. Stand with me. i got to let you go. Dumb bones, dumb bones, dumb dry bones. Did you notice they played my entrance song this morning about the dry bones? Just to remind me, I guess. But praise God, one of these days, these bones are going to be changed. 
Touch your neighbor and say, changed. Changed. Philippians 3 and 20 and 21. Put it up there and we'll go after I do it. Philippians 3 and 20 and 21. Dun, 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 dun. Philippians 3 and 20 and 21. 3 and 20 says this, Who shall change our vile body? This one you're looking at, 72 years old. And brother, it creaks and pops. And this mouth moans and groans. Poor old David Wade can't, all, can't get all the creaks and things out of this old body. But it's going to change. I said it's going to change. Thank God it's going to change, Michael. It's going to change. Who shall change that body and shall fashion it like unto his own glorified body. They used to sing when I was a kid, I'll have a new body. Praise the Lord I'll have a new life. That's exactly right. And that's what heaven is, folks. Thank you, Lord, for allowing me to preach this gospel message on this Palm Sunday, 2021. Thank you, God, for hearts and minds that are set upon those things that are above and are looking for that day when you will appear. God, we just pray as the book of God ends, even so come, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to live with no fear. Help us, Lord, to rejoice greatly. Help us, Lord, to pray that prayer. Lord, you're our salvation. You're our deliverance. Give us an enjoyable Sunday, a Lord's Day with our friends around the Palm Sunday table, and enjoy fellowship one with another as we celebrate life in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.